Hello and welcome to the LA Venture Podcast, where David Waxman and Minnie Ingersoll, partners and investors at 10110, we've watched Los Angeles grow from a sleepy tech backwater to a bustling mecca of startup opportunity. Through conversations with fellow investors and a few other special guests, we'll deliver an insider's view of the LA tech scene. I'm delighted to welcome Karen Ortman from Upfront Ventures. Karen and I go way back, meeting when she was an associate at Battery Ventures working on my company, Spotrunner. Since then, she's been a senior executive with IAC, a founder and CEO of her own company, and now one of the most prominent VCs in Los Angeles. Kara is truly one of the finest human beings I know. Welcome to the LA Venture Podcast. Oh, you guys, thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Um, and uh, I'm so grateful you guys are putting this podcast together. It has been a ton of fun. Uh, so just for listeners who don't know you, maybe give a little version of your background. Um, specifically, I have heard you talk about how it wasn't all premeditated, pre-planned, but looking backwards, you can tell a nice narrative. Yeah. Well, so first I'll say I am um, I am a rare LA native and a proud LA native. So I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Um, I left when I was 17 and went east and kind of lived all over the country for 15 years. And I've been back now for a little over a decade. Um, yeah, I mean, I always think when people tell their career narrative, it seems so linear and appropriate. But when I was going through mine, it was sort of like I was like at the cutting edge or just the edge of whatever I should have been doing in my specific job. And it kind of led me to venture capital. But I truly had no idea that venture capital is where I would build my career. So um, out of college, I was trying to figure out whether I work for a nonprofit or Morgan Stanley. Now both are in my life um, in different ways, but I went to work for Morgan Stanley. And so I've been on um, pretty equally split between investing and operating, as you mentioned. So half my time um, at you know firms like Upfront, and I kind of grew up at Battery Ventures, both in the Bay Area and Boston, which is where I met David. And um, and then I spent the other half of the time operating. So I ran M&A for IAC um, with a guy named Joey Levin back in the day. And then I went in and operated a few of our business units. So um, City Search, Urban Spoon, and Incubated, uh, Sean Rodden, and Incubated something that started out as a company called Cartify and turned into Tinder. Um, the last thing I'll mention is um, I was an upfront-backed founder. So my partner, Mark, funded me along with um, Graycroft and, and some others to start my company. So the, uh, the decision to join was, um, was kind of an easy one and an interesting one because I went from Mark being my board member to Mark being my partner. And uh, that experience kind of led me to where I'm sitting today. Fantastic. So we are sitting here today on the sort of beautiful rooftop patio deck of Upfront, where you've been for five years now. Right? Yeah, I've been at Upfront for five years. Tell us more about uh, Upfront and your your journey here and, and what, what you guys are up to. Yeah. Well, so look, one of the major reasons I wanted to join Upfront was I had a great experience with my partner as my board member, and it kind of opened my eyes to various different ways venture could be done. And I think that's one of the particular perspectives I bring when I'm talking to founders. I'll as often try to convince founders not to take any venture or not to take my venture as I will to have them take my venture. Um, because every firm has a different product and a different style. Um, and whether you're joining a firm as an investment professional or you're taking money from them, I think the key thing is actually finding fit all around. Um, very few work as expected. And sort of like having the right expectations from the beginning is important. We're currently investing out of our sixth core fund, which is a $400 million fund. 
We tend to come in at the earliest stage. Uh, what that means to us is we're typically your first institutional board member. We're not necessarily your first institutional capital, but we're also very happy and comfortable to be your first institutional capital. But we're high conviction, low volume. So we do try to get to know founders as early as um, I'm sitting in a company and even just thinking about I'm going to leave and start something. Very few of them, as you know, turn into investments, but when we invest in someone, we've often known them and been a part of their journey and hopefully even introduced them to you guys if it's, you know, if it's not right or we want to partner up on something early from the earliest phase. And that helps us have conviction because even though we're coming in possibly sometimes um, after some money has been raised, it's usually still, if there's signals there, they're only signals that give you comfort, <laughs> but they don't actually tell you as much about, you know, they don't de-risk things as much. So we're very much about sort of understanding the people and having high conviction around um, the founders in the business. And then I'd say the last thing is we invest across um, tech and tech-enabled services, right? And so uh, that would be consumer, enterprise software, and deep tech or frontier tech. And I'd say at this stage, we're probably split a third, a third, a third. Um, you said you said that you're low volume. How many deals does Upfront do and how many do you do per year? We each make about two investments a year. So we're six partners now going to eight partners. So call that, you know, kind of uh, 12 to 16 investments a year. And if somebody's coming to Upfront, how do they figure out which partner to go to? Yeah, I mean, that's a, an imperfect science, to be totally honest. Um, I think in any venture fund, this is something entrepreneurs should not overthink, but think a little bit about. Um, uh, I mean, I would say, so I'm equally split between consumer and enterprise. I spend a lot of time in future of work, but I also spend a lot of time around consumer brands, enterprise software more broadly. Um, I tend to be excited about people of really specific um, and focused concepts as to how they're going to market, but a big vision as to how they're going to create a different category or change behavior. Uh, and I operated on both kind of the infrastructure, uh, or I, I invested in the past when I was a battery on the uh, infrastructure side and, and kind of early stage communications services and storage and all those fun things that happened back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then obviously at IAC, um, you know, bought and ran companies that were more on the consumer side. So I'm probably one of the most significant generalists at Upfront. Um, my partner, Kevin, Zhang, um, um, he spends um, most of his time in gaming and healthcare, which you might not think Too cohabitate. Tastes great <laughs> together. But he's a biology major. He was pre-med. So he does a lot of our cutting edge sort of like biotech or computational biology work, our ag tech work like in, in companies like Appeal. Um, and then he's a gamer. And so, you know, he was on the board of Seriously, which just had a nice outcome um, this week. And so he's, they're just really two interests that are very organic to Kevin. Um, my partner, Mark Suster, um, who you guys may have heard of, is uh, he, uh, he... He's best on social media. Oh, he's best in all environments. I mean, he's the reason I'm here. By the way, one thing I always say about Upfront is um, we all have the same backend. You just have to kind of... A lot of figuring this out is not necessarily even what we focus on. You just have to find the right user interface for you. And so so we all have different UI and you know, some people might be better with my UI, some people might be better with Greg's UI. It's just so um but we all work hard, we all care. We care when things work or don't work. Um and we care about moving through not just the good times but the hard times and you'd find that consistently. That's something we really screen heavily for across all of our partners. Um but going back, so Mark spends a lot of his time on enterprise software, computer vision, and I'd say kind 
kind of tech-enabled media. My partner, Greg Bettinelli, um, spends quite a bit of time in marketplaces and retail. Innovation, those are two areas you know that touch a lot of us. Um, I'd say all of us probably have invested or, or, or been involved in marketplace and retail. Um, so it's something that sits in all of our portfolio, but Greg spends the most overt time probably thinking about certain theses. Um, Someone told me that Greg goes really deep on a thesis where you'll look more at the team. Um, yeah, I mean, I think at the at the end of the day, a lot of the question of like, how are you wired for when you're hunting and trying to determine as to whether you invest versus what you do post investment. Um, I think we kind of all end up in the same place in the long run. It's more around when you're in that uncertain emotional curve up front, what causes one of you versus the other one to pull the trigger. And so I'm very, very team and founder base, which is why I really like best case scenario is I'm meeting you six months, a year, two years before I invest in you. But I won't get excited about something unless I either have been thinking about that theme or it's a completely new thesis or, or that I haven't spent as much time on, but I'm driving people crazy. Like I always say, am I driving my husband crazy talking about it at cocktail parties? And he's like, I do not want to hear about the future of virtual identity anymore. <laughs> um, so am I, am I passionate enough to like want to diligence it, not for the duration of the time I'm going to invest, but to become a valuable and savvy board member to you because there's a learning curve. And then do you have to just make sure there's not adverse selection, right? So if it's in Southern California, you're less likely to have adverse selection than if it's, you know, an enterprise software company in the Bay Area with the team out of Dropbox who wears hoodies and lives in South Park, right? right? So, um, so anyway, but, um, and, um, and I should have probably said that up front, but we, we're, we're heavily focused on Southern California, but invest, you know, nationally and even internationally. Um, so that kind of gives you a flavor. We just brought in two new um, great partners. One was um, someone who is very well known to the LA community and has worked with us for uh, nearly five years, Michael Carney, who um, who is um, kind of moving from principal to partner and sitting on the boards of many of our growth stage companies already. And then the other is a woman named Aditi Maliwal, who um, I've known and mentored for many years, who was most recently at Google, was um, started in the office of the CEO, moved into emerging products, and before that was at Crosslink, Deutsche Bank, and Stanford. So we have a kind of like a very like a large gamut, eight partners. And at the end of the day, I'd say we're pretty good at moving things around. Um, so don't feel like you have to get it right. We function more like a team than I think um, nearly all partnerships of our varietal, um, which is lead, typically take a board seat, have a lot of downstream capital and reserves to keep supporting you. Um, your lead partner, the person that's going to show you're, you're going to show up on your phone at eleven o'clock at night for a good thing or a bad thing, will be the person who runs your investment and leads your investment. And that's the person who's committing to you. However, we all um, really work to have relationships across our full portfolio. And so, you know, I kind of think of it as a major and a minor, even though we're not organized that way. And it's broad advice I have for any founder who's taking money from a firm that could likely be involved and be helpful to you in both upside and downside scenarios with a, you know, kind of a bigger fund that can keep underwriting future checks. It is really helpful to have a second partner that you overtly build a relationship with. But we help each other. I mean, yesterday, I, I've been working on an independent board seat for one of our companies um, that Greg's a lead investor in. And I mean, we all help each other with introductions, with downstream funds, with all of those different things. And then I think naturally, we kind of like become a minor on certain companies when we have uh, rapport with that founder. 
And you're talking about supporting the companies. Uh, Obviously, financial support is a big piece of that as companies grow. And I know that you've had an opportunity fund or two, but are now working on a growth fund. So a new entry point for for entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, for sure. I'd say the overall, so Upfront's been around for 23 years. Our core fund is the sixth fund, which is the $400 million fund. We also have now what we call growth funds alongside of that. And so I can't speak too much about it, but you could probably Google it and find out. And maybe by the time this comes out, I can. But yeah, that is a fund that we have to both continue supporting portfolio and be able to lead in investments in companies that we maybe um, haven't uh, invested in for whatever reason, um, but we met at the seed or met at the A and probably more than likely, like we, we didn't get there for some some reason that has changed or evolved, but that we've had a long-term view on and, and believe strongly in the founders. That's great. So it is actually investing potentially in companies that aren't already in your portfolio. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who have these funds right now. Um, it's an imperfect science, but usually, you know, opportunity fund may mean, largely means you have enough funds to continue supporting your pro rata. Growth fund means you can lead rounds out of the growth phase for your own company or, and, or invest in new companies, but there's nuance across the board and you can just ask and they will tell you whoever has it will tell you what it's for. Tell me a little bit about how your time has been. Even when I'm incredibly busy with portfolio, I'm always trying to have touch points with new founders and and kind of be hearing company pitches or be talking to them about different options around joining a company or starting one. So that's always a piece of it, but that's probably the most flexible piece. And I mean, I think it's a thing to keep in mind with me, but it's a thing to keep in mind with all VCs that uh, primarily that take board seats is if you sit on a lot of boards, um, when one of your companies has an extreme moment and and the good moments like acquisitions or um, big financing rounds, I mean, big financing rounds is the interesting one people, people don't think about. When your company is going through a big financing round, that can sometimes be as time consuming as your company is running out of money, you don't have product market fit, and how do you treat everyone properly and get through this moment? Because all sorts of weird behavior starts to happen at these big rounds and particularly in this market. So um, so I'd say the flex capacity is new and community and speaking and branding and events and all those sort of things. And my partner's needing me or my founder's needing me is like, is air and water. Um, and then my kids and my family, they're kind of up there too. Yeah. And you and Upfront generally have been fantastic in building the LA ecosystem community. And I think that's widely acknowledged and uh, appreciated. But you're a Series A investor. And I imagine now some of your competition is coming from San Francisco, the Bay Area. Do you think at some point, you know, you just want to go a little more DL on like touting LA as this amazing place? Or what are you seeing coming from? I I see it sort of facetiously. Um, yeah, I, no, I don't, not at all. Obviously, it's great for all of us. It's great. It raises all tides. We still need more big funds coming down, locating here, et cetera. I think we've, let, we've really expanded the pre-seed and seed ecosystem in a way where, you know, there are great firms like 10110. And, you know, and so when it's not the right fit for us, you know, it's, it's, there's some really great high quality people that are here. There's still not that many big funds here. So we need more and more to come down. So it's only good for us. I would say, um, I think what series A means and what seed means and what, I mean, it's all, none of the letters mean anything anymore. And I, and I actually think it's more of a marketing tool for founders. And really what you should be asking is what is your, what is your typical check size? 
what are your ownership requirements for that check for your fund economics to work? How do you work with a uh, founder's post-investment? And how much are you reserving for me? And what happens if something goes wrong? Like, those are the questions. Our, our median initial check is $3.5 million, which many in the Bay Area consider an institutional seed round. So of my 10 investments I have led, seven of them have been at the seed stage. Um, uh, most of them have been pre-revenue. Some of them started when the founder was at the company and is a year away from generating revenue, and we didn't even know if they would start a company. So um, I do think that it's an advantage for all of us to be down here and be able to have those conversations. Um, something I have to constantly remind myself is I shouldn't be running up to the bay all the time, and I should just sit with founders and you guys and really focus on supporting the, the best companies here. Um, because about, you know, um, I have about 40% of my portfolio portfolio here, 40% in San Francisco and 20% in New York. So when do you seek out additional funding from outside sources as opposed to just continuing to fund yourselves now that you can with a $400 million fund? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I <clears throat> Every $400 million fund that comes in at the early stage is different. Um, we really invest at every stage the same way, which is to say, and, and not all funds of our size do, right? Many will just give you some money as an option. And I think the signaling risk is largely gone around that. I think people used to worry about that. Um, you disagree. I disagree. Why do you think it's gone? Well, I think there's two different ways to look at it. It is absolutely not a real thing if it is the core way that fund invests. And that's this is where I think the terminology gets in the way of determining how that core fund invests. So you ask that fund, how do you invest? You know, if they take a board seat and they're not taking a board seat here, if they typically need to own 20% and they own 5% here, you know, if they typically meet with founders multiple times a year and that's put on a calendar a year in advance, and this time they're not doing any of those things, that could be a signaling risk. It's not as dramatic as it once was because so many big funds um, kind of put options on the table now um, in a way that is just more socially acceptable. But I think the question is, is this your core product as a venture fund? And then it almost doesn't matter what the check size is, what the round is, what the stage is. It's, are you committing to me the same way you commit to all other founders in your portfolio? What do you think of the scout fund phenomenon? I think that the scout fund phenomenon is sort of evolving real time right now. And there are some really great things about it. Um, but I, and, and then there are some, you know, strange things about it. I do think a lot of signaling people try to use it for signaling and it doesn't, that doesn't really work. So no, I think founders should understand that. Right. So getting a top brand scout invested you shouldn't really market against that. You should just decide whether you want this specific individual in the way you would any other investor and treat them as an individual. Are they someone, I always tell people, decide when you're bringing an investor in whether they wanted help and they will, whether they want to help and they won't, or whether they're just going to leave you alone and there might be upside that they do help on occasion and or when you see them in your cap table, you smile. And the, the scout program I would look at as that third bucket um, and sm small checks. And we love bringing in small investors and in all of our investments because they do tend to help. And when they don't help, you know, they just are in your cap table. And so bring in people that you care about and would like to make money. Um, I think it's a, it's, it's something a lot of big funds are experimenting with. Um, and you just have to be overt as to why. Um, I treat a lot of people in the market like scouts and it doesn't need to, you know, like it does, it's not necessarily formally I'm giving them capital, but these are people that I think about, do I want to 
have a relationship with them? Do I want to mentor them? Do they have a long-term interest in venture capital and they want to build a track record and get a real feel for whether they want to do that? That's my offer to them, right? And because that takes time and we're all strapped for time. And what I get back is a little bit of joy. Um, I mean, that's kind of what happened with the DT in a very different way, who's now our partner. I just mentored her because she asked me to be on her personal board of directors and I was so flattered and no one had ever asked me that. And it was really a way of saying, can I be vulnerable and get career advice from you even though we don't work together? I've used scout kinds of programs like that as I'm going to kind of invest in you. And for that, you'll be out in the market looking for interesting things for me in areas where I might not be able to spend as much time because I'm on a bunch of boards or you have just access to a different universe of people that I might be less likely to um, interact with on a daily basis. But a lot of the scouts, just remedial here, a lot of the scouts are investing Sequoia Scout Program. They're investing Sequoia's money. Yes. Okay. But, but I agree with you. I think, I think it's great to take the money from the individual if, it's, if you like working with that individual, but to market it is, is dangerous. Yeah, and, and by the way, you know, doesn't really fool anybody. I mean, like Sequoia Scout Program is sort of on a totally different level. It is at the actual size of a fund, right? So, and um, uh, you know, they're probably taking signals in some specific and creative ways because Sequoia, you know, to really understand that as top of funnel in a much more methodical way. Most other, fr- and then there's some firms who do that at the college level, and that's pretty methodical. Um, but many funds, because I've talked to a lot of funds who do this, they'll say, I mean, really, unless you're going to spend time building a relationship with the people who are in the market for you, it's not really good for anyone, right? But if you are going to invest, you have to kind of view it as another way you're going to spend your time, especially if you're looking at it as lead gen as a big fund. Where do you get your leads? I primarily, I'd say, source through people, but all different kinds of people. Um, And they may be sort of some of these younger people in the LA community that I'm building a mentorship relationship with. Um, They may be founders of ours. That's where some of my, my best leads come from. And I tell all founders who are fundraising, the best way to get introduced to a VC is not through your VC. Your VC is critical to helping you close around, but you want to save them for the important conversation when someone's pretty far down the funnel. VCs are conflicted and, you know, we all trust each other and I'm going to, I'm not going to reach out. To, if I reach out to you with something that's imperfect, which everything is, I hopefully will be transparent about it. But the best introductions come from founders um, because they're not conflicted and they're just doing a service to the community. Um, so things like that. How often do you go chase a deal, like where, where you've heard about the company and they didn't come to you through a source? It's a good question. I think in LA, we have a big chip on our shoulder to want to see everything. So I will chase and chase hard if it's Southern California. But usually if I'm chasing, um, it means I, for some reason, got it wrong and, and we didn't spend time with that founder early enough. We're going to get things wrong. Um, and we try, you know, we try to be gracious when we get them right and when we get them wrong, but hopefully we've, we've met. I will say you have to, I think one of the things that is the, the, you have to, when you're excited and you have conviction, um, the way I'm wired and we're wired is we are not waiting. We don't need to wait for you to get two term sheets. Like if we're at that phase and we're chasing in the middle of a process, it's probably gone. So I'm very comfortable chasing early without as many signals as many other Series A firm, if I believe in that founder, and kind of like making that round, whatever it is, a bigger seed, an early A, a particularly unique founder coming out of a company early without them needing signals from other firms. And that's one of the benefits, I think, of being down here. 
So does that lead to sort of advice for the founders who are running their own process and how they could run a better process of getting to know you earlier, getting to know you when they're not fundraising? Or do you have advice yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I kind of like, I always say VCs are the busiest, non busy, busy people in the world. <laughs> You'd have to unwrap that for me. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, sense. we have this infinite supply chain, right, of things we could do every day. And so, and I think this is candidly why VCs overfund productivity software, because we're like <laughs> constantly trying to hack our productivity. And it's like, you know, it's the most hackneyed thing someone can talk about in VC. Um, and we should probably try to fund things that are truly harder problems, because I find that Google Docs work just fine for my productivity and to-do list. But yeah, I think uh, with busiest, not busy, because like there's things that you have five-minute tasks, you have half-an-hour tasks, you have hour tasks. You can always help a company more, one of your companies more. You can always take more first meetings. And then we all always need more time to think, like sitting back and creating the space to think and self-develop and personally develop so you can be a great board member and partner. I mean, those are things I think you need to invest in to be really good at this job. It's not accidental for the most part. Um, so we have the problem of um, we can't one-on-one -on -one meet with every single early stage person who's thinking about starting a company. So I think a lot of this is just having a savviness and an EQ around how you get introduced, get on people's radars, when you come and see them. And so um, uh, a lot of that is just like, communication and have, being able to write a crisp email with like, where am I right now? And to kind of let people opt in, you know, the best time, you know, the, the old advice is the best time to fundraise is when you're just asking for advice. Mm -hmm. And the best time to get advice is when you think you're fundraising. So go into a VC and send them a two, a two line, uh, three line email saying, quick reminder, I'm at, you know, SpaceX and, um, we, uh, you know, uh, we met through so and so I've worked on X and Y I'm starting to think about whether or not I should start something or join something. You, any quick thoughts, if you could just point me towards a resource, like don't even ask for time, point me towards a resource. In which case I would probably say, Oh, well, they're not asking me for time. Why not? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you make them earn it at every phase. And then there's one, um, person I can think of who did this so well and um, initially started by saying, oh, here's an interesting company in LA. Have you heard of it? And I hadn't, and it was kind of interesting. And then said, here's another interesting company in LA. Have you heard of it? And then said, hey, um, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods for 15 minutes. Can I just pop in and <laughs> say hello? And then all of a sudden they're pitching you on your company, their company, and you're like, wait, I'd love to learn more. Uh -huh. I'm often just very impressed with people who know how to manage um, us and you know and I always want to be respectful on the other side and I think one of the hardest things about VC and about my personality in particularly is I'm I do struggle with time management and I struggle with being late um, and a certain, as soon as I personality profiled to that um, it almost became like a, um, acceptable to me which is even worse and I want to make sure founders have a great experience with us so I don't want to invite you in to pitch if I know that I'm not interested and I'm not going to spend time on it right now because I'm totally distracted or it would be better for you to do X, Y, and Z but I think the best thing you can do as a founder um, is to be comfortable with asks and to take fast no's from 
from VCs because they may be doing you a favor. I find the VCs who sit in these long maybes and don't actually give you transparent feedback, like do a disservice to the candidly, not huge percentage of us who at least try to be thoughtful. And then remember we're human beings and we screw up and we, you know, we get it wrong yeah. and we treat time poorly sometimes, but we try to do, be the best version of ourselves. Is there a way to pull a fast no out of a VC? Because I, I try and do fast no's, but I fail all the time because, because something else comes up and I get caught in it and time management. Yeah. I mean, a couple things. I think one would be um, when you say, I mean, at every phase of the funnel, there are different t- tricks. One would be when you email to say, is it, is it helpful to come in now? Or is there more that you would want to see to make it, make it the most valuable meeting? I think there's weird power dynamics and they change throughout. And a lot of this is everybody just always wants to come forward with strength. Um, and some, but, but VCs also don't want to miss the opportunity to potentially meet you. So I think just more optionality around how you communicate um, may just allow more honest uh, communication back and forth early. That's one. Two, this is my style. But if I am in a meet, I, I try to do sh- very short initial meetings, right? And I try to do them, if I can, as soon as possible. And sometimes that's not possible. And, you know, so make, literally, like, make the first meeting 20 to 30 minutes. If you can do it in person, still do it in person. But everyone's afraid of offending everyone from a time standpoint. And just whatever it is. For me, it's just getting to know that person. Like, do we have chemistry? Am I really interested in what you're doing? Can you pretty crisply talk about what you're doing? Am I thinking about it that night? Am I craving more? So I think it's thinking about the units of time. And then in that first meeting, if it's clearly not a fit for me, for whatever reason, it's a fit for my partner, I might bring that up. Or if it's just clearly not a fit for me right now or at all, I actually will try to give that feedback in the meeting and kind of turn it into a more productive session to discuss like how I could be helpful and just giving a little bit of advice. I'd rather that person walk away knowing where they stand. And then my personal rule is, and if you're listening to this and I haven't done this with you, please email me and give me a hard time. If I've had two or more meetings with a founder or I've really dug into diligence, I always try to get on the phone and give you real feedback. And sometimes that feedback's weird because I don't even know why I'm not moving ahead. And so it may feel weird because I'm just sort of like, eh, it doesn't feel right. I don't actually know what will get me to the next step, but it's just like not now. Um, But for the most part, it's usually something specific. And I really try to get on the phone and be transparent about it because particularly with Southern California founders who don't, I think, I think people tend to pass in ways that make everyone feel good, but don't actually give you value out of why it's not a fit. And Kinley, many founders don't really, they think they want to hear why, but when they hear why, you kind of end up, you know, it happens on occasion, it happened to me this week where it's like, oh my gosh, like maybe I shouldn't be giving them the real reasons. I try to do it in a very high EQ way. I got tons of no's at a founder and it hurt. Like it was like a dagger in my heart every time, even though I had been on the other side of it and I thought I was ready for it. There's just nothing like getting no's. And so the empathy for that, I, I, I have somewhere. But I think kind of asking why and getting real feedback from the people who are willing to give it to you, particularly if they've actually spent time on your business and it's not just a quick, not a fit, can be valuable because I view fundraising as a muscle and you got to build the muscle at every stage. Very few people are naturally brilliant at it. 
people naturally have tools and skills around it, but to go from like an A student at the seed round to an A student at the growth round, you have to invest in that like a skill as well. And it's great to hear how people who you respect, if you respect them, if you don't, no need to take their feedback, have analyzed your business and what it is that's not working, even if it's completely subjective at the early phase. Wow, there's so much in there. So when you said have people get comfortable with an ask, is that an ask like I'd like some money or is that more like I like uh, introductions, I'd like feedback? Oh, yeah. It's very hard to ask a VC for introductions. Like a VC who will make quality introductions for you is going to offer it. If you ask them, they're almost certainly not going to make it. Okay. So, and that's not entirely true. Use your best judgment. One of my big pieces of advice when you're getting pieces of advice is only take some of it. Whoever you are who's listening to this, you know, take 50% of the advice you give, figure out what's right for you. And for many of you, you will not be able to see yourself and anyone out there in the world. And you have to figure out what the right path is for you. Um, That's true for new VCs. It's true for founders. If you do things like your partner, you, and and that's not consistent for you. You're not going to get great results. Like I'm a more catch more bees with honey person. So I'm always going to try to like lay out options for my founders and help them find their way through without saying, this is how you should do this. And half the time they do it the way I think is right and half the time they don't. And if they're hundred percent time doing it that way, usually it's not good. But I mean, going back to the original question, I think you want to make an ask to understand next steps because one, we're rushed and that may not come out. And two, um, you need to be really comfortable that, you know, you may have to talk to 80 people to get one yes, and then you're going to get two more, right? You may have talked to three people to get one yes, but that's what TechCrunch celebrates. That's not what happens for 90% of, 95% of companies. If you have a minute at the end, say, can I just take one minute? Can you quickly tell me do you have a reaction? Are you interested or not? Um, and for you, what would be the best next steps? And if you're two or three meetings in, it's, you know, or even in the first meeting, if you have time, how does your firm work? How do you typically get to a yes, right? Some firms need partner meetings, some don't. You know, some p- firms have you need to do a ton of diligence. Some firms make a decision on the spot, you know, and so I think understanding what's, and it also ends up being a commitment vehicle for everyone to at least try to be the best version of themselves. And if you don't ask, you're more likely, the, the other side is most likely to be an average to version of themselves, if that makes sense. Did that make sense? David, you look confused. No, no, I was just looking at Minnie. <laughs> no, I, I, I was also looking at and thinking about whether we have time to also talk some about your investment theses, because I would love to yeah. hear more about things like the future of work, the future of unions. Like, I'm so fascinated by this topic, and you're such a thoughtful person on it. So if we could squeeze it in, I would love to. Yeah, 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 for sure. Let me say, I'm invested in a bunch of companies like Parachute Home and The Wing and Territory, and then I'm invested, um, which are all on the consumer side, and Skylar and a bunch of great LA companies. I'm also heavily invested in enterprise software companies that largely fit into the future of work. And these are companies like Fleetsmith or Cordoba or Strive or a couple we haven't announced yet that I can't wait to. But um, so I do do both and I can more or less justify anything. But then some of the more kind of traditional future of work things are around um, skilling and reskilling, right? You know, how do we move away from the $1.5 trillion of student debt? How do we get people into not just coding jobs, but other jobs like sales and healthcare and and the things that you may actually have, the things that we know will not be automated are, uh, at least for a while, are just sort of 
human skills, right? And many more dollars have gone into funding coding boot camps and, and you know, income sharing agreements for coding than how to train a nurse practitioner, which is a big family supporting income. And there are many millions of jobs being created there. So I think a lot about, you know, can you build, you know, kind of workplace universities where you go straight from high school into a workplace and be trained and retrained? How do you skill and reskill? How do you create family supporting incomes? How do you change the way we teach people, right? So there's, you know, everyone knows Lambda School. I've been looking a lot at other companies that have peer mentoring and tutoring where you have other ways to reward people and learn for different kind of profiles of people who want to learn to code. Um, as you know, I'm very interested in the future, like of the third place or the, you know, kind of things that could be thought of as almost like modern unions, places that may drive collective action, but also more places where you can be you and find like-minded people. Like if everyone's working from home or three different jobs or is moving jobs every two years, where can you have a consistent place where you can build relationships and grow yourself across work over many years? I mean, the wing came out of that, but I've also looked, you know, I look at rock climbing communities and all sorts of things that kind of dovetail in. And then the third thing I'd mention is just, um, I'm really interested in virtual IP and that has actually sprung out of my interest in the future of work, but how do we represent ourselves online? Um, each one of us as consumers, and also how do we get inspiration and connect with content that doesn't necessarily need to be tied to real world human beings, given how much of our life lives online. So anyway, that's a little bit out there, but um, companies like Little Michaela and Brud, and there's a bunch of others that have come out of it. I think we're just in like the first half an inning there and for kind of finding teams and opportunities that bring the best of LA around storytelling and um, content creation and AI and machine learning and kind of platform approach together could do some very interesting things in that area. Does the future of work have work-life balance? I hope so. Okay. No, I mean, I think it's the biggest change for those of us who've been doing this for a while. Like work-life balance wasn't cool when I came out of college and I used to pride right. myself on not having work-life balance. And now I'm a mom of three and I have an amazing husband and I have a lot of hobbies and I can't, and I have a lot of friends and I love, those are big parts of my life. Um, and I don't get to invest entirely the way I would like to, but I am a firm believer that you need sleep, you need hobbies, you need family, not necessarily in that order, um, <laughs> to be creative, to be innovative, to like find joy in life. So I, I think of it as like a two-step. Step one is, is just how do we actually get more family supporting incomes for more people in this country. And that's a whole topic unto itself. Step two is how do we find joy and not strive for something that isn't going to bring us joy. And that's again, a longer conversation, but I think once you get to a place in your life where you actually can invest in those other, those other things, it actually makes your day job um, more exciting. And certainly that's been the case for me for all the things I've done on the side in the last couple of years with all raise and times up and women's soccer and my pickup basketball league. And they fall out sometimes and you can't spend time on it. But I find when I, I do have the time to spend on those things that just give me joy and have nothing to do with my day job, I do my day job better. Okay. Well, in case it's not clear to anyone, I'm not actually a professional podcaster, but today I'm thrilled. I feel like one because we have our first sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Brex, the credit card built specifically for venture-backed businesses. I feel like many of our listeners will have heard of Brex, but let me add my two cents because we are happy customers here at 10110. 
I especially appreciate the easy expense management. Rex also has higher limits, no personal guarantee, and many other things to love if you are a startup founder. Go to brex.com slash LA Venture to get a special offer of waived credit card fees for life. Brex.com slash LA Venture. Once again, thank you so much, Brex. Hey, not to beat a dead horse here, but ratings, tweets, they really do make a difference and they really do make our day and probably help justify the drive from Pasadena. Thanks. Thanks.